there. Rish outfield here. And the Rish out cast has begun once again. This episode is a continuation of the last one, wherein I'm presenting Lost and Found, which is a uh, novella, a short story, novelette, a piece of fiction I once wrote. I told Abigail Hilton about this story. It was when I was publishing it. She read it and we talked about it. And I think because of that, I thought I had already run it on the Rich Outcast, but I hadn't. Whoops. Well, you know the rest. Let's finish the story and then we will talk about the story. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Five. In the building's parking garage, a limousine sat idling beside the doors to the executive elevator. Armin had given the boy his cell phone, and his mother was waiting for them by the big car. Will walked to her side, and she put her arms around him, looking him over, feeling his forehead as though checking for a fever. William, how did it go? she asked, and he shrugged. She met her brother-in-law's eyes, and though he was tempted to look away, he returned her gaze and gave her a nod. Neat limo, huh? Will said either to Diane or to Armin, or maybe just to himself. There was a man in a suit standing by the big black car, but he neither said anything to them nor opened the doors. So they stood there awkwardly, waiting for Kassad to come down, Armin taking the opportunity to explain, briefly and entirely positively spun, what had happened in the building. The CEO came out of the elevator two minutes later, speaking quietly on his own phone. Gary, listen to me, please. Let me try this. We'll be there shortly. He hung up, placing it back in his suit jacket. He was sweating. Everything all right? Armin asked. Seeing his boss stammer like that had humanized him somehow. Yes, yes. She will see us. Everything will be fine. He sounded like he was trying to convince himself. Let us be on our way. They got into the back of the limo, where two rows of seats faced each other. They tried to make themselves comfortable in the strange car. The security guard from before, Struzan, got in the front with the driver. Do you have the address, Mr. Arrihon? Kassad asked, rather loudly. Yes, sir, the driver of the limo snapped back, like a military thing. How long? Kassad asked him, raising his voice, though the partition was down. Twelve to fifteen minutes, sir. Kassad nodded as the car left the parking garage and out into the daylight. Is my car going to be all right? Diane asked. I left it in the visitor section. It's fine, Armin said, though he couldn't know. There was a lot of traffic downtown, and it would take a while to get wherever they were going. Armin watched Kassad. The CEO had brought his phone out again, just holding it now, a totally different man than he'd been in his office, in his comfort zone. Sir, this is my sister-in-law, Diane. Are you young Willie's mother? I am. 
I appreciate what he's doing today, what you're both doing. She made a non-committal sound. No police, right? The boy's uncle told you that. No police, agreed Kassad. We'll handle this internally. She will see us, did you say? Diane asked him, her eyebrows raising. What? You said your daughter would see us. What are you not telling us? Nothing. It is complicated. Is she going to turn us away, Mr. Kassad? No, of course not. You still thirsty, Willie? Armin asked, hoping to change the subject. Yeah, the boy said. He looked pale. Three ports in a single hour would have exhausted his father at that age. Diane glanced out the windows. So where are we headed? Uh. Armin studied the older man's posture. He was no longer in his element, even in a fancy car with his name on the license plate. He seemed nervous, more so than Diane did. West of town, the child's house. We looked up the address. Looked up, she repeated, meeting her brother-in-law's eyes. They're estranged, he said quietly. Estranged, Diane muttered, but it was impossible to read her mind. She kept asking the CEO questions, like a detective grilling a suspect. Do you have enemies in your business, Mr. Kassad? Is that what this is about? No, the man said, reddening. I am extremely ethical and responsible with my company. We have no enemies, merely admirers. And none of your admirers has come forward with a ransom note or anything? No, he said again, but softer. No. Diane was antagonizing him, and Armin certainly knew what that felt like. But he wondered how helpful she thought that was. They were there to make the situation better, not raise everybody's stress level. Diane watched the limo change lanes and turn, then added, I guess what I'm asking is, if you know something, something that'll put my son in more danger than simply going... There are no enemies that I'm aware of, he said quickly. Mrs. Cholner, there have been no ransom demands. The police intercepted a prank call or two, but everything else has been offers to help, to search, to support the family and investigation. You don't know if she's been taken. Could she have run away? No. She's a very... He thought about it. I don't know. Her mother says no. Diane let him off the hook for the moment. She looked down at Will. You okay, kiddo? Sure, he said, looking out the tinted windows at the passing streets. I'm like the president, and we're headed for a big meeting. Who does that make us, kiddo? Armin asked, humoring him. You guys are my staff. Mr. Kassad is like the president of Russia or China or something. Kassad didn't comment on this. He was preoccupied, glancing down at his phone, then putting it in his suit pocket, then pulling it out again a moment later. At least they were able to ride in silence for a while. The limo left the city and entered the suburbs. Diane kept touching her son, putting her hand on his knee, his arm, his head. Armin was sharing the tension now, 
sensing it coming off his boss, his sister-in-law, and now, finally, his nephew. Hey, sport, he said to the boy. What's the farthest you've ever ported? Will thought back. Tokyo. Armin nodded. And what's the furthest you ever ported with someone? Dad and me went to watch the last space shuttle launch. But that's not the same as... Quiet, Will, Diane said. The boy didn't quiet. I went to Coney Island once with a kid at school. You didn't, Diane gasped. We were at recess, so we looked around for a minute or two, then came back. William, I told you. You promised. That was before Dad died, he explained. The day I fell asleep in class. I don't remember that, Diane whispered. The limo made good time and soon pulled up to a rather small two-story house with two police cars out front. They had passed a news van half a block back but no one was in it. But you can port with another person, right? Armin went on. Yeah, it's hard, though, like carrying somebody upstairs. The limousine parked in the driveway, and the security man got out, standing there waiting for some kind of signal from his boss. How old is the girl? Diane asked Kassad before he could leave the vehicle. She is twelve, he said though she was pretty sure Armin had said she was ten. Big for her age? I'm... I will have to ask. He'll be fine, Armin said. Elmer ported us and two bicycles home from across town more than once. Kassad motioned to a security man to give them a moment. Who is Elmer? he asked. My brother, the boy's father. He could do this as an adult as well. Kassad asked, impressed. Armin was pretty sure he had mentioned that. You know, I used to try to port, he said to his nephew. I'd focus, squeeze, concentrate so hard I'd get a headache. My jaw would be so sore I couldn't chew gum afterward. But you never ported? Never. Guess you're born with it or you're not. Kassad tapped the window and his door was opened. I've always been able to, the boy said, since I was a baby. Kassad was shaking his head. It's true, Diane admitted, not quite as proudly. Sometimes he would come to me to be fed or changed, once when I was in the bath. Armin smiled at that. He had stories like that himself, of a brother who came to see him at summer camp, away at college, once, most embarrassingly, after the junior prom. Kassad cleared his throat. Perhaps the boy's father would be a better choice to go after my granddaughter. He can't, Diane said at the same time as Will said. He's dead. Uh, terribly sorry, Kassad said and stepped out of the car. A policeman walked up to him, and they spoke for a moment before he signaled for Armin and the others to join them. The house was modest, nothing flashy or top of the line, not exactly what you'd expect from the daughter of a multimillionaire. The whole group, minus the limo driver and Struzen from security, walked up to the porch. The policeman knocked twice, and the front door was opened by another cop. They all went inside the house. 
6. Mrs. Vance, mother of the missing girl, was at her kitchen table, smoking a cigarette and filling out some forms. Cassad asked the two policemen for a bit of privacy, and they stayed behind in the living room. Diane held Will's hand, and the four of them entered the kitchen together, a little like the group off to see the wizard in the Emerald City of Oz. Mrs. Vance stood when they entered the room. She saw her father, and there was fire in her eyes. "'What?' she demanded. "'What's happened?' "'Nothing bad,' Kassad tried to reassure her, but he was not convincing. She looked a little like the CEO, dark, serious, but tired, unhappy, weighed down by hardship and the present circumstances. "'Did they call?' Who has Elspeth? No one. Uh, no one called, he amended. We still don't know anything, but... You wouldn't pay, would you? You told them no. Fury was burning from this woman, and Mr. Cassad wilted from it. I... I would never... He said softly. Diane stepped forward. Mrs. Vance, I'm Diane. We think we can help. What? Did you see something? Was this at the park or somewhere else? Diane put her hand up. My son can find her. He... he's special. Special? Armin glanced behind him, aware of at least one cop eavesdropping on their conversation. He was going to remind his sister-in-law of this, but she simply said, We'll travel places. All at once. Places? Mrs. Vance asked. Like on Star Trek, Will added, and though he was trying to be helpful, it might not have been the best comparison to make. The woman glared at the newcomers, shooting daggers at them, even the boy. What is this shit? Diane made a quick decision. Will, show her. What, Mom? Armin spoke up. But the policeman— Go to the girl's room, Diane told her son. Her voice was serious and confident. I don't know where it is, began the boy. Just guess, his mother said. Go ahead. And then Will was gone. Mrs. Vance dropped her cigarette. Cassad bent swiftly and picked up the cigarette before it could burn the tile floor and snuffed it out in the sink. What is going on? his daughter asked him. At that moment, Will stepped back into the kitchen from the hallway. They all saw him come in again even the cop. Hers is the room across from the bathroom, I guess, he said sheepishly. Armin didn't know if that meant his nephew had guessed wrong or felt awkward being in a girl's bedroom, but he wasn't the worse for wear. Diane spoke again. My son is able to travel instantly to places, even if he doesn't know where they are exactly. Can I have a drink of water? Will asked. Diane ignored him, continuing. We think he can find your daughter, as long as he holds something of hers and concentrates. Mrs. Vance looked at her father. You believe in this? I do, he said, again not all that convincingly. She shook her head, her anger coming right back to the surface. No, you don't. You don't believe in anything. Just the great God dollar sign. Kassad said nothing to this, 
Armin couldn't believe this was the same man who ruled Kasadje with little to no mercy. Diane approached the woman, taking her aside. Listen, I realize there is something between your father and you. Oh, is it obvious? The woman said sarcastically. But we genuinely want to help you. I think he does, too. Like he helped us when he chased Elsbeth's father away. We were almost happy, and then he— Mrs. Vance, Diane said. None of us knows anything about that. But my son, he has this ability to find things, to go places. And my husband had it, too. You and I aren't that different. We both love our children and want them safe. Yes, yes, I do, the woman said, and began to shake lightly. It's just that he did everything he could to destroy my family, and now he— Diane interrupted, touching the woman's hand. My boy, Will, wants to help you find your little girl. Even if it's dangerous, let him try. The woman cleared the tears from her eye and nodded. Okay. Is everything all right in there? A raised voice said from the living room. It was the policeman who'd met them at the door. Just talking, thanks, Mrs. Vance called back. She smiled at them, almost apologetically. It wasn't a full smile, but it was something. Diane asked if her son could have a little bit of water, and Mrs. Vance agreed. She was still frazzled, but no longer at wit's end. Diane had a way of reaching people of knowing what to say to calm them or reassure them, if she wanted to use it. Her own gift. After Will had his drink, Mrs. Vance walked them through the hall and into the girls' bedroom. It was small and decorated with origami unicorns and dragons and birds, all painstakingly hung from the ceiling like mobiles. Pretty cool, Will said, for lack of a better statement. On the old bureau were a couple of photos, including one of Elsbeth and her friends in one of those photo booth strips. Armin was surprised those still existed. They showed a dark-haired girl with big eyes and lips, preternaturally pretty. The photo they'd been showing on the news had been a school picture, where the girl had braces. Armin wondered how out of date that one had been. "'Okay,' Will said, looking back at the girl's mother. I should touch something that's, like, close to her. I mean, that she was close to. He was eyeing her pillow, but felt a little weird about picking it up. Mrs. Vance sighed, then said, On the shelf, there's a rabbit. It was the last thing her daddy gave her. It was a stuffed bunny, worn and faded, either because it was very cheap or due to excessive handling. Maybe both. Okay, Will said again. I guess I'll do this then. Be careful, William, Diane said, fighting the instinct to go to him, to grab his shoulders and keep him here. If you think there's any chance of danger, don't go. Test the waters, Willie, Armin suggested. Can you do that? What do you mean? Your dad used to be able to port somewhere for just a second— then port back if it was the wrong destination, or someplace unsafe. You know? No. Well, Elmer could do it. I don't know how it worked exactly. 
it struck him that Elmer hadn't done that on the day he was killed, or he'd have known better than to appear on a freeway during afternoon rush hour. "'I'll be careful,' Will said, and closed his eyes. He gripped the old rabbit in one hand and concentrated on it, hoping he wouldn't end up in the toy store it came from. "'William?' Diane asked, getting cold feet all of a sudden, and the boy vanished in front of her. Seven. It was fairly dark where he appeared. Indoors, a bare light bulb above him, a twenty-five or thirty watt at most, maybe fifteen. There was a bad smell in the room, and he took a quick breath, afraid he'd found the girl, and she was dead. But it wasn't a dead smell. It was more like a sick person smell. He was facing a sink, and slowly turned, situating himself. He was in a basement somewhere, some place with no windows. There was the sink, a door, a little dark closet, and a bed. A shape was curled up on the bed, a sheet wrapped around her. She was making a very quiet, very unsettling, keening noise. There was dried blood on the bedsheet. Will swallowed, and it was difficult. Porting always dehydrated him, but he didn't know if that was the reason for it. He took a step toward the bed. Another step. The covered shape froze beneath the sheet. Will froze, too. "'Shh!' he whispered. The girl started to whimper, and Will quickly went to her side. "'Shh! Elspeth! I'm here to help you!' Her head emerged from under the sheet, and her face wasn't like the photos Will had seen. It was the same girl, yes, but terror and misery had changed her. Her hair was dirty, her face sticky from sweat and tears. She was older than Will was, but she looked much, much younger. Her eyes were very large and very shiny in the semi-lit room. No, she mumbled then said it a half-dozen more times. "'What is this place?' Will asked her. "'How did you get here?' The girl shook her head back and forth, and the keening started up again, louder this time, but just as upsetting. Will reached for her. "'Shh! I can help. I came to get you.' "'I want to go home,' she managed. Will was moved by this. Any lost kid would say the same thing. Yeah, sure. Just give me your hand, okay? She scooted herself farther away from him, against the headboard of the bed, and Will saw bare skin under where she pulled away from the sheet. There were dark bruises all over her shoulder and arm. Bruises like fingerprints. That's why I'm here, Will said, holding his hand out to her. I... Behind him. The doorknob rattled. Will turned just as the door was pulled open. "'Who are you talking to?' a man said. Will's eyes went wide. The man in the doorway was tall, bespectacled, with a round, almost jolly face and a mole on his neck. He wore some kind of work uniform, but the shirt was unbuttoned, revealing a fish-white, hairless chest and belly. He was holding a hypodermic needle in his hand. Elsbeth Vance began to moan in fear. 
and Will poured it away. Eight. Back in the missing girl's house, Mrs. Vance looked from the space where Will had been to her daughter's bed. What will he find, wherever he went? she asked. It might have been to anyone in the room, or it might have been to herself. It could have been to God, who knew. Armin could see Kassad tense, fight the urge to go to his daughter, try to give her comfort. Instead, Diane moved forward, putting her arm around her. We don't know yet, she said. The woman muttered something, something none of the men could hear. Yes, Diane took a deep breath, let it out. But I think it's better to know. Don't you? Yes, yes, Kassad said from behind them. Much better to know. Mrs. Vance ignored him. Diane whispered something to the woman. Mrs. Vance nodded, then looked back at the bed. Her little girl's bed. Listen, I... I can't be in here right now, she said, addressing Diane. Kassad watched them together, more than a little stunned that she was allowing this stranger into her confidence. Okay? That's okay, Diane said, as the woman backed out of the room and started down the hall. We'll tell... I'll tell you what happens. But there was the unmistakable sound of gagging, and Diane couldn't help but step into the hall after the woman. She had never lost her child. Well, she had, actually, many, many times before he learned to control his traveling. But not like this. Still, she knew tragedy, knew despair, and couldn't help but attempt to comfort Galley Vance. Armin, she called behind her, come and get me the moment he's back. Armin went to the doorway to respond. The mother had gone into the hall bathroom, and Diane was standing beside it, speaking softly. Mr. Kassad put his hand on Armin's shoulder, getting his attention. Should I... should I go talk to her? Armin was frankly surprised that the CEO of Kassad J was asking his advice, but he shook his head. Diane will probably be better at this. Another mother, you know. Yes, of course, said Kassad. Even so, he looked down the hall, longingly, as though he wished he were able to be there, but could not. He closed the bedroom door. Now there were just the three adult men in the room, Kassad, Armin Choner, and a policeman. The cop said, Do you want to explain what just happened? No. Armin said. I wish you hadn't been here to see it. The cop, a burly man, seemed almost hurt to hear that. What do you mean by that? No matter what happens, Armin said, glancing nervously at the bed, then at the policeman. I ask you not to talk about what my nephew's doing. If he comes back with an address or a map or something, or if he brings back the girl himself, just... Just leave him out of it. You can take the credit, okay? Yes, but... But what did he do? And how did he do it? 
come inside. He didn't want to have to explain this again, and to a cop of all people. But his boss cleared his throat in an officious, no-nonsense way. Kindly agree not to discuss what goes on with my granddaughter, or I will ask you to leave the room. The cop pursed his lips, about to respond defensively. Then he turned his eyes on Armin and shrugged. Yeah, okay. Lips are sealed. Very well, Kassad said, as though making a business agreement. And then, suddenly, Will was back in the room, standing a foot away from the bedroom window, his eyes wide with terror. He gasped from the exertion, then squinted in the now brighter light. Willie! Armin shouted. The boy stumbled backwards two or three steps and leaned against the girl's bed. He was pale, sweating, breathing shallowly, like he was in a very high altitude. Tell Diane the kid's back, Armin told the policeman. As though he'd been given an order, the big cop headed for the door. And water, Armin said. Bring something to drink. A lot of it. Nine. After Will had ported away, Mrs. Vance had gone to the bathroom, splashed water on her face, maybe too much water, as it was all over her blouse and the floor by the sink, and was now patting herself with a towel. Diane stood just inside the door, talking. Dan was a good man, a good dad, but he could be reckless. Still, it was my fault. How? Gally Vance asked into the mirror. Diane fidgeted. She'd never told anyone the details of the story, especially this detail. He was on the phone. He asked me where I was. I didn't think anything of it. I just... I told him I was at the store when I wasn't. I was driving. I guess he came to visit me cost him his life. The pain of the experience, even the pain of the memory, had never gone away. It didn't help that almost no one could know the truth of what had happened. And worse, the damned insurance company simply wouldn't accept that it had been an accident. She had had to make up a story, and once told, she had had to stick to it, as weak as it was. Diane had stopped talking. Gally Vance was looking at her. You said he was reckless. What? Dan? She had just said that. Maybe. Maybe he was. I, I don't know anymore. The loss had blunted her to pain, numbed her to feeling. But she suddenly wanted to gush to this woman and accept her pain onto herself, even though they didn't know each other at all. There came some shouting from the end of the hall, and the big policeman came down to the bathroom. The boy is back, the man said. I'll be right back, Diane said, and literally ran back to the child's bedroom. Armin was patting Will on the back, as though comforting him from a nightmare. Diane smiled at that, then forced it away. Honey, are you okay? Did you make it there all right? The boy looked up at his mother and his face was pitiful. He put his arms out, and she embraced him. 
into her hair, he said. It was bad, Mom. So bad. She's locked in a room, like a cellar or something. It was gross. He was hurting her. She could tell it was difficult for her son to talk, and remembered how thirsty it used to make Elmer. Armin, you need to go get us something to drink. He's going to need— Already taken care of, he said softly, standing beside Mr. Cassad like they were a couple of doctors, waiting to give their patient the test results. But it was definitely her? Cassad asked her son. You know it was Elspeth. Uh-huh, Will said. I tried to bring her back, but then the man came, and I was scared, and I— His voice cracked then, and he buried his face in his mother's chest like a much younger child. Both men's hearts went out to him. Hush, Diane said. You just rest. You did fine, don't you worry. You just stay here and rest up. Then we'll talk about what to do next. She pulled away from him, and the boy didn't want her to stop holding him. Where are you going? We ought to tell Mrs. Vance. She needs to be here to hear this. She stood from the bed and walked to the door, turning back and saying, You just concentrate on getting your energy back. We'll decide together on a good plan. Okay, he said, and she left him again. It occurred to Diane, even though she didn't know how Will's power worked exactly, that perhaps he could port over to the outside of the building the girl was being held, take a look around so he had an address, and stay out of harm's way. But what if it was in some compound in the woods somewhere, and they caught him? Maybe he could just take a phone with a GPS on it, call the cops, and let the police find the place. Or he could port with the phone and port back without it, and then he could be out of this, free to drink lots of soda and take a nap. Gally Vance was sitting on the toilet, her arms around her legs. Will's back, Diane said. Will? My son. He saw your daughter. Says she's alive. What? Where is she? I don't know. Let's go hear what he has to say. Mrs. Vance shook her head. She stared at the tile floor. It's not possible. Which part? Diane asked. But it didn't matter. She entered the bathroom and actually helped the woman, a veritable stranger, up from where she was sitting, supporting her like a friend, like a sister. And why not? This was an intimate thing they were sharing. It would force anybody to bond, like war, like surviving a disaster. Okay, let's go. Let's find out together. Diane walked with the grieving mother and made up her mind. This thing with the phone wasn't a bad idea, and she was sure she could convince Will to go along with it, and probably Armin as well. But who cared what Armin thought? He wasn't the boy's father. It wasn't his decision. Diane headed down the hall to where the girl's bedroom lay. One of the policemen, the young one, Orton said his name tag, was standing outside the door. The door was closed, which seemed a little strange. Everything all right? he asked, for want of something else to say. Did my boy give you a location? she asked him. He didn't know. I was just told to bring a lot of water. 
They took it and told me to wait out here. Diane pushed past the young cop and opened the door. Armin and the girl's grandfather were standing together, the other policeman pacing the floor. William was gone. Where is he? Mrs. Vance asked, looking at her father, at Diane beside her. I thought he came back. He did, Armin said. We got him something to drink. He found her, Gally, Kassad said, very on edge, but also visibly hopeful. He found our little girl. Diane let go of Mrs. Vance, staring hard at her brother-in-law. He didn't already leave again? Go back there? He, uh, uh, yeah, Armin said. He was exhausted and scared, and I told him to rest. Yeah, well, he's a kid. Sometimes kids don't do what you tell them. Diane wasn't about to take that for an answer. He went back? Alone? Alone. You should have gone with him. Did you see how weak he's getting? Armin sighed. I saw. He was afraid if he ported with me or one of the cops, he wouldn't have the energy to port back. We'd be stuck there. So? He'd have an adult with him, a policeman. Now what if he's there, alone, and he still can't port back? He said he would be able to, Armin pleaded, his hands up and open. He told me, he's a nine-year-old boy, Armin, she all but exploded. Now he's defenseless in some psycho's basement. Well, Armin began, then thought better of it. Mr. Kassad, his boss, spoke up. Tell her. I'd better not, Armin said. He knew the woman better than the CEO did. Better not what? Diane asked. The policeman, a big-bellied but tough-looking man, cleared his throat. My gun. I gave your son my service pistol. The entire house, and whatever cops may have been stationed outside, heard the woman scream, You what? 10. Will arrived once again in the semi-darkened basement room. He had closed his eyes for a moment before going, so that his eyes would be more accustomed to the dark. He had insisted, after a couple of minutes in the girl's room, on going back, even though he was exhausted. What if the man who held her had grabbed Elspeth and was making a run for it, in a van or a truck? What if the kidnapper knew he was caught and decided to prevent the girl from being a witness? Will was terrified she would already be dead, because he panicked and ported out of her cell as soon as that guy walked in. He should have gone to the bed, grabbed the girl in a big hug, and ported back with her. Then all this would be over. But he had to go back, and soon just get in and out like a, like a cat burglar or something. Uncle Armin didn't want to let him go, said he was treading close enough to the edge now, playing Russian rollades or something, and was trying to come up with a safe way to do this. Finally, Mr. Kassad, the kidnapped girl's grandpa, suggested that Will take a gun with him to shoot the degenerate, whatever that was. He didn't need a gun. What he'd need after porting was a bottle of orange juice. I... I couldn't, began Will. But then he thought about it. 
he could use the gun to keep the guy away from them, at least long enough to port back out. Well, that's when the policeman stepped forward. He was a tough-looking dude with a bit of fat on him. Do you know how to fire a pistol? Well, I've played Call of Duty, Will offered. I'm afraid it's a little more complicated than that, Will shrugged. Maybe I could just threaten him with it, make him think I'd shoot him. I think it's safer to just shoot him, Kassad advised, his teeth clenching. No, no, Armin said, making a gun shape out of his fingers. Just point it is all, then come back here as soon as you can. I'm going to be tired, the boy said. Mr. Kassad here will buy you a new bed, one of those memory foam mattress ones. Isn't that right? The CEO nodded. Yes, by all means. All right, Will said. He held his hand out to the policeman. The cop seemed to be having second thoughts now, but he handed over his service pistol. Wow, heavy, the boy said. Maybe this isn't such a great idea, the cop, Officer Rushton, said. Armin agreed. He saw shadows now under the boy's eyes, sweat marks on his T-shirt. Will, he said, go ahead and sit down for a few minutes. Rest up, and then, when you're ready... But Will was already concentrating, afraid he'd chicken out if he gave any time to thinking about it. He ported. And then he was in the room again. A basement, he was sure of it, with the bad smell. The room was still only lit by the single dim light in the corner, but the door was closed, and the scary man wasn't visible. The girl was still on the bed, one of her wrists now tied to the bedpost. There were red, raw marks on her skin where the rope had rubbed. "'Hello?' he said quietly, glancing at the door again. He got the idea to prop something in front of the door, so no one could come inside. But the door opened outward." and that probably wouldn't work. Elspeth, he said. We've got to go. Who are you? She mumbled. He thought she was asleep. I'm here to help. He stepped over to the girl, his legs stiff from all the ports, and nearly stumbled. He considered using the bed to rest, but it was very, very gross, and she had wrapped one of the filthy sheets around her, cover her nakedness, he supposed. His throat was parched, his lips felt dry and on the verge of cracking, and he would have given his allowance for a year for another Gatorade, even that sick orange kind. Elspeth, he hissed. No, you shouldn't, she began. He's here. And then Will heard the noise from the closet. The kidnapper had been standing there, in the shadows, waiting for Will to return. The patience of a saint, or a true lunatic. "'How did you get in here?' the man hissed. He had a high-pitched, uneven voice, and there was definitely insanity there. "'You leave me and my wife alone!' The man came toward him, and it was all Will could do not to port away again. Instead, he raised the pistol in both hands and said, "'Freeze!' like an old cop show. The man halted in mid-step, looking from the gun to the boy 
to the girl on the bed. Just shoot, Elspeth quietly urged. The kidnapper's eyes narrowed under his thick glasses, his anger rising, and before he could take another step forward, Will pulled the trigger. Nothing happened. The trigger wouldn't budge. The safety was on. When Will looked down to see what was the matter, the crazy man made his move. He rushed the boy and knocked the gun from his hand. It hit the floor with a heavy clatter. The floor was bare concrete and skittered like a fumbled football under the bed. What could Will do now? Where'd you come from? The man growled at him. Did he send you? Yes, Will said, backing away toward the head of the bed frame. Yes, he did. The man stopped. He gestured for Will to continue. Well? Will glanced at the scared, tied girl and got an idea. I have a message for you. Will stepped to the bed, grasped the rope, gave it a pull. It was anchored to the wall somehow, and poured it. He only poured it a couple of steps back, in the same room, but the rope in his hand poured it too. Weird. He'd never tried anything like that before. But it seemed to work. Elsbeth was still tied, but now there was a break in the rope where he'd ported it away. How are you doing that? the kidnapper exclaimed. Elsbeth, give me your hand, Will said, though his mouth now felt full of cotton, and forced his legs to run toward the girl. The man seemed to understand what was happening, and he moved forward too. Will grasped the girl's cold, bruised fingers, and just as he concentrated on her room back where their moms were waiting, the kidnapper grabbed her leg. He gave Will a shove, but the boy was already porting. He felt the air go out of him, and was back in the Vance's house, knocking into his Uncle Armin. Armin oofed. Will hit the floor, carpeted this time, and opened his hand. The girl had ported with him, including the filthy, stained sheet and something else. A surprised yelp came out of the girl's mother. One by one, the people in the room took in the sight, comprehended that Elsbeth Vance had been returned, and surged forward. "'Kiddo, are you all right?' Armin asked, and the boy only wheezed, as exhausted as he was dehydrated. Behind them, Kassad had his hand on his daughter's back as she rocked her own daughter in her arms. "'Is she all right?' he demanded. Through tears, Mrs. Vance said, "'No, but she's home. She's home.' The policeman simply stood there, feeling useless, and it wouldn't occur to Rushton until much later to ask what became of his service pistol. How was he going to explain this? Will passed out momentarily, but he did have a smile on his face, knowing that he had pushed himself farther than ever before and come out on top. He'd rescued the princess from a miserable, unspeakable fate, and while she would be scarred for a long time, maybe the rest of her life, she was now safe and back in her room, with her mom and a man who might have been Grandpa Vikros. She closed her eyes and wept again, 
but in a different way this time. Mr. Cassad was the first to see it, stepping on some squishy object, then looking down. He thought it was a glove at first, but it ended up being something more gruesome. Will didn't know it yet, but in porting away himself and the poor kidnapped girl, he'd inadvertently taken back the sheet and what was touching her at the time. The kidnapper's right hand, neatly severed at the wrist. The End Okay, that was Lost and Found. And I believe at one point I was going to call this story The Finder of Lost Children. And you probably know where that comes from. Well, maybe you don't. In uh, Pulp Fiction, Samuel L. Jackson's character does this Bible verse. And it's, it's not actually from the Bible. The, the beginning of it is... He goes, Ezekiel 25, 17. And then, you know, he quotes it, and then it becomes this weird, angry rant in biblical language that he says to people before he kills them because it's really scary. You know, it's wrath of God stuff. That's the part everybody remembers, the part that's not actually from the Bible. The part that's from the Bible is, blessed is he who in the spirit spirit of charity and goodwill ushers the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. That's the quote that's sort of from the Bible. And then he goes, and I will strike down with great vengeance and furious anger those who threaten to destroy my brothers. Is that right? And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon you. I tell you, I once lost a job for uh, my Samuel Jackson impression and the finder of lost children. I think it's still a cool title. If I decided to write a bunch of stories about this kid, I guess I could call the collection Finder of Lost Children. Regardless. I called this story Lost and Found, and I think that's a fine title. There was a movie, I want to say it was a David Spade movie, with like Sophie Marceau as the love interest. How did that happen? Uh, that was called Lost and Found also. But the inspiration for this story is, I was at the post office one day. I used to have to spend tons of time in the post office because I sold toys and... Once I got a big pile of envelopes, I would take them to the post office and have to stand in that line and go through that madness. And then I'd have to go home and do the paperwork, type up how much I spent on each one. And I just, oh gosh, what a, w but that was that. Now I just print the labels myself. Now I just print the labels myself. I do all that stuff myself. But one time I was in the line for the post office and this girl came in, and she was famous. But not famous for being a singer or an actress or winning the lottery or taking a bullet for Johnny Depp. 
she was famous because she had been kidnapped and the things that happen to a, 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 a girl who was kidnapped and eventually got away and was famous for that. And I looked at her and shoot, dude, one of the most beautiful people I've ever seen. And it just felt so weird that I knew her because of this awful tragedy that had happened to her. And I felt this wave of affection for her or pity for her or I knew what she had gone through, but we were not friends. We were not related. There was no reason I should have this intimate knowledge of her. Does that make sense? It just seemed wrong. And I called Big Anklevich and I, I told him about this. And we talked for a while about it, about this poor girl. And that I would know who she is because of that is, well, it's sad. And I kept thinking about her and I thought I had been kicking around this idea about a young man, maybe he's a teenager, maybe he's 10 years old, who becomes fixated on Anne Frank, on Anne Franca, the poster child for the Holocaust. And he becomes obsessed with her. He feels like he knows her. He wishes he could do something to help her. And then, yeah, time travel will fit into it. And ultimately he got the chance to go back in time. And that's what it was, is I'm gonna save Anne Frank and her family. I never wrote it. It was an idea that I had and I, I couldn't get over the fact that there's a language barrier. And let's say that he goes back in time to try and save Anne Frank and she doesn't speak English. So yeah, it becomes just this farce. It's a stupid idea, really, I guess. It's, except for it isn't. I like that idea. And it's like, what? how different would history be without her, without the diary of Anne Frank? She personalized the Holocaust for everyone who has ever read that book or seen a documentary about it or watched one of the many adaptations. It's not outside the realm of possibility that somebody would fixate upon Anne Frank and say, I want to help her. I'm going to use this new technology, this burgeoning technology, or maybe he's an inventor, maybe he invents a, a time machine for that purpose. Everybody wants to go back and kill Hitler. But to be able to go to that house in, it's in Amsterdam, right? And rescue them. Well, it's very compelling. And an author, maybe, maybe it's already been written. If so, F you. Not F you, the, the listener. F you, the person that's already written that because you've got more talent than I do. Uh, I felt this connection with the girl. I felt this connection to her, to the girl, the real woman who I saw in the post office and I still feel and it is weird but I feel something for her that is not unlike what I feel for Aunt Frank and maybe that's crazy maybe that is why women write love letters to people on death row murderers and stuff like that 
they blur the lines of reality and celebrity and I guess I'm admitting that maybe there, may, there is something mentally wrong with me. But the result, the end result was lost and found. It was a story that I wrote inspired by seeing her at the post office and it doesn't have anything to do with her, but I still thought about her while I wrote it. And like I said in But Now I'm Found, that episode, I thought about, I'm still thinking about writing a follow-up where we go on another adventure of finding a person or finding a thing or finding many things. You know, he makes a career out of it. And I just, I loved the idea that he and the kidnapped girl, the ex-kidnapped girl, are partners at some kind of private investigation firm. You know what I'm saying? Because you could explore her damaged psyche and explore her as a character. And then of course him, and what does it do to a person to be able to make this difference? And what does it do to a person when you're not able to help? When you have an extraordinary ability, but it doesn't fix things. Like what if she had been murdered? Remember, we talked about that, right? What if she's buried in a shallow grave somewhere and he ports to that grave? And maybe the mother could be part of it too. The mother, for, for me, was a really complicated character. The uncle character was just me. I, I really like the scene where he goes to the boss and gives him this speech. It, it, just, it was my favorite part to write in the story. And he's a super easy character to write, as, as is the boy. The difficult character to write was the mother. And the problem was because the uncle is the character I relate to, the character that is most like me, and she is opposed to the uncle, I couldn't help but feel antagonistic toward her as a writer. But she's a mother, and she's lost her husband, and she blames herself for it, and she doesn't want to lose her son, and that's the most natural, understandable thing in the world. And I don't know if I entirely succeeded in making her a good, relatable character. I wrote the scene where she's talking to the mother of the kidnapped girl from one mother to another. She goes and she sort of has a heart to heart with her. Oh, because the kidnapped girl's mother is estranged from her father, whose name is Vikros Kasad, right? No, Akkad. Was it Akkad? Named after Mustafa Akkad? I want to say, but it could have been Kasad. Interesting. I can't remember the name of this, this character. And he's got such a, a wildly exotic name, too. I don't know. There's a lot of damaged people in this book, in this novella, in this story. And maybe it's worth exploring what happens to them next. I've said it before that I don't tend to write series. I don't tend to write follow-ups. It's a one-and-done kind of thing because 
the first stories that I ever wrote were horror stories. And a lot of times you can just end the horror story with, and they died. Bye-bye. But I see the appeal of continuing to develop these characters. Or if you see them as friends, if you see them as people you haven't caught up with in a long time and you, you can't wait to visit with them again, that is a huge draw for writing series. I'm also sort of attracted to the idea of the boy being in love, like his first love is this girl, yet she is in a rough place. And it's not a physical place. It's, she was in a rough physical place. But now it's in her mind and what can you do? I don't know. I'm talking myself into wanting to write this, but there are so many projects that I want to write. So many things that I'm in the middle of and I'm never going to finish them. Never. And I think that may mean that all of that practice was for nothing. It's like you're a skier and you're trying out for the Olympics and you practice and you practice and you practice and you practice and then you don't make it into the Olympics or you don't even make it to the tryouts for the Olympics. You know what I'm saying? So does that mean that all of that practice was for nothing? It's a rhetorical thing. I don't know. I had a story that I was going to write. I had it in my head to write the final adventure of Abraham Van Helsing. And I was going to write this story where he's very, very old. He's at the end of his life. I don't know, 78, 80, you know, his battle, he's been battling with the forces of darkness for all these years and his battle is about to end. What's his legacy going to be like? Who's going to remember him when he's gone? And very much like Vikros Kassad, he is estranged from his children and his grandchildren. And he tries to make amends here at the end. Anyhow, I realized as I was writing this that this is a big project. It's not just a short story or a novella or anything like that. And that the story has to continue after Van Helsing is dead. And I thought, oh no. I don't know what's going to happen after that. I, I vaguely know, but I don't really know. And that's scary to me because nine times out of 10, when I don't know where it's going to go, it's going to go into the crapper. It's going to go into the circular file. I'm not going to finish it. And so I chose to end the story when Van Helsing died as a sort of, you know, end of part one. Book one is over, and now book two, which is about his grandchildren, is going to commence. And just between you and me, that gave me an out. If I never wrote the rest of the book, at least I got to the end of the first half, and it felt like I had accomplished something. It did not feel like I was a worthless hunk of wasted organic matter. 
I don't know why I'm telling you this. Oh, I guess the point is I would love to write a follow-up to Lost and Found. And if you're at all interested in that, let me know. Put it in the comments or send me an email. But I would rather you put it in the comments and start a conversation about it because what would you like to see in a sequel? What stories are there that could be told about somebody with this ability? And then the most important thing is what threads did I begin in Lost and Found that you still would like followed up on that could be explored? Because maybe you say, well, what about this? And it didn't even occur to me. And I think that's it. That's the key. That's what this sequel is going to be about. And I end up writing it. Goodness, that would be great. Uh, sorry, the engine is really roaring because I'm going up the hill of the canyon. This is the toughest part of the journey because it's all uphill, fairly steep. And then on the way home, it's fairly steep downhill and I have to ride the brakes the whole time. Otherwise, you get going 90 miles an hour down this hill and you would be killed because there are some really steep drop-offs. Well, I mean, there's a steep drop-off I'm looking at right now where you'd fall 30 feet in your car and that, that would still kill you. But there are some where the fall is 80 feet. There's some where the fall is 90 feet. You know, there are some where it's more than a football field's worth straight down. And people have to go off this road all the time because you see people in trucks, not pickup trucks, but the other kind of trucks and go, holy cow, how would they even manage on this road? And they shut it down in the winter because it's just, yeah, too dangerous and too snowed out. You can't get plows through here. It's just chained up and closed five months out of the year. And so anyhow, I guess I'm talking about two different things. I've reached the end of this episode. One more apology. I apologize that I shared this when I did it, but I don't apologize for sharing the story. I don't think it's a bad story. There, I do recognize a flaw in the story and it was after I had already published it, but I wasn't going to go and unpublish it and write a new section and re-record it and do all that stuff. It's like the ship has sailed once the audiobook is out there. And every once in a while I will find errors in the audiobooks and it's too hard to get Audible to unpublish it and to publish a new one. I have had them do it once and it was such a process that a little voice in the back of my head said, you know, you could have published a whole new short story in audio in the effort that it took you to get this fixed. And so I have learned since writing Lost and Found, and I feel like I have made efforts not to make the same mistake that I made in this story in future things, particularly things like a mark on the sky or 10,000 coffins. These are pieces that I have written. And in the back of my mind, I'm trying to not make the mistake of perspective that I made with Lost and Found. So 
I want to thank you for listening to it. Thank you for listening to my show. Thanks for being a fan, if you're a fan. If you're not a fan, dude, thanks for listening to, the, to something you don't even like. That kind of makes you a pretty cool person. You sure you don't want to be a fan? Thanks, Abigail Hilton. Thank you to Gino Moretto. Thank you to those Patreon supporters. You guys are good people who have made a difference in my life. And uh, it makes me work a little bit harder, makes me want to share more of my stuff. And uh, I'm gonna continue to do that. I don't know if it is pointless, if I'm just spinning my wheels. Do I need to keep chasing pavements even if they lead nowhere? I don't know, but right now I'm doing it. And so thanks. You have a great evening wherever you are. Even if it's seven in the morning, you have a great evening. And I will be back again soon. And blessed are those who, blessed are those who shepherd the weak through the valley of darkness, for they are truly their brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? Good night. The podcast you have just listened to was produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it while you still have the chance. And remember, there's a Patreon page out there. You can donate a dollar an episode and up, or just contribute monthly to Outfield's daft schemes. In return, he presents exclusive content, as well as early access to the episodes. The music in the show was by Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech.com. McLeod, I am told, also has a license to kill. I must be dreaming. Damn it. I've got a bag full of mail right here in the car. Okay, when I'm in town, I'm gonna look and see if there is a uh, post office. Okay, idiot. There's gotta be a post office. Okay, start over. I apologize, I'm in the town and I need to find where the post office is. This town is dead. My God, look at that. I don't see another person as far as the eye can see. It's three o'clock in the afternoon and there's not a soul. If there was another person, I could pull over and say, hey, hey there. Sorry to bother you. There's just nobody else around. Hey, I've got a package. I've got a mail to, is there a post office around? There is. If you go down, this is third, second, first, go to Center Street, take a left. It's on the right hand side. Okay, Center Street, take a left. Take a left, it's on your right hand side. Hey, thank you, man. You're welcome. All right. On Frank, personalized the Holocaust for everyone who has ever read that book. I remember hearing a story when I lived in LA that Pia Zadora's husband got her a gig playing Anne Frank in a production of The Diary of Anne Frank, and she was so terrible that in the scene where the Nazis 
came in to investigate, somebody in the audience shouted, she's in the attic. I think I'm going to cut that out because that that's got to be untrue. It's one of those stories you hear in LA that you know is a lie, but it's just so mean that you have to tell it too. I'm going to cut that out, but enjoy the outtake, huh?